Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, the leading management publication for the social sector in Australia. Hello, my name is Susan Metcalf. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Social Ventures Australia. In this SVA Quarterly podcast, we'll be exploring organisational culture in the social sector. Management consultant Peter Drucker has made the statement that culture eats strategy for breakfast. We know this applies in the for-profit world, but how does it play out in the social sector? With me today is Richard Spencer, who recently stepped down from the board of SVA. Richard will share what he's learned and observed in his years of working in the social sector and the for-profit world. Richard began his career as a lawyer with Clayton Newts in Sydney and then joined Rio Tinto as general counsel in its head office in London. In the late 80s, Richard worked for UNICEF in Australia and then in Brazil, and then later as president and CEO with the AFS Intercultural Programs in New York. Since coming back to Sydney in 1998, he has worked as a CEO of the Cerebral Palsy Alliance and the Benevolent Society. In 2016, Richard was appointed as a commissioner with the Productivity Commission, where most recently he worked on the inquiry into human services. Richard, welcome. Thanks, Susan. Good to be with you. As we think about culture in this sector, why is it important? What should we be thinking about around culture and how it links to strategy and our success in the sector? Yeah, well, it's the, the cultural issue is it's something that gradually crept up on me. Um, and when I first, and we're looking back on it, when I first experienced a really great culture to work in, it was actually with Rio Tinto, which surprises a lot of people. But I found at that time it was a very, it was a very un-British company because I was with the UK part of the organisation. Uh, because it took a lot of those issues pretty seriously about uh, bringing together professionals from very different fields, how do you create great teams of people, how do you really think very differently about the sector. And I, and I always remember I, I had a time working with one of the, another one of the major mining companies at that time and it was just like chalk and cheese, very hierarchical, much more the stereotypical kind of idea we had of what a British company would be like then. So Rio Tinto was a terrific grounding and that experience has actually informed a lot of the work that I've done in the not-for-profit sector because what I began to realise was that um, the, the culture and the relationships you build and the depth of understanding about why we're here, why does it matter and most importantly how do we go about that and some very basic things. How do you sleep well at night about what you do? Uh, and I suppose looking back both in my commercial experience and not-for-profit experience, I think overwhelmingly, I start from an assumption that most people are in a job, are in a role to make a difference. And that matters. It matters at a very profound level. And it's not often talked about. We don't get explicit about what matters to us. And I always remember Norman Drummond, the book he wrote quite some time ago, Spirit of Success, he's got those three great questions. (laughs) Who are you? Why are you living and working in the way that you are? And what may you yet become? You use that anywhere with a group of people and suddenly there's a profoundly different conversation taking place. Uh, And and ultimately that does connect with the organisation's capability uh, to do what it's there to do and do it as well as it can. Mm, That is an interesting question about how do individual values connect with organisational culture? Mm. How do you align the why that each person is there for with what you want to achieve as an organisation? Well, I, th- I think one of the other, one of the major, one of the key responsibilities of leadership is to be really thoughtful about, you know, who this organisation is, what this organisation is there to do, what are the values that underpin that, uh, and and also to engage with um, the stakeholders. That's both your staff, 
clearly boards of governance, uh, other stakeholders, about what that actually means. Those conversations, in my experience, are really important to sort of work out what what, what, what is that, what, what matters to us. Um, then as a leader, it's to be really thoughtful uh, and explicit about how do we bring those values to life in the organisation. Uh, you cannot be a leader unless you've got a pretty good sense of who you are and what your values are. Uh, and then you be able to, you need to be able to engage with people and be both clear about the values you bring to the table, but also what do they bring? You know, I mean, if you, it's not a matter of imposing. It's a matter of really discussing, exploring, and agreeing on what matters. And then, how are we going to, how are we going to build that into the culture of the organisation over time? Uh, the first thing most people look for is, does the leader actually lead with those values? Uh, and people are very good at working out when you are playing a role or when you are being used. So I think one of the initial challenges of leadership is, is how, what, what, what works for you? What, what, what are you comfortable with? You're not playing a part, you're you, but your values need to be there and explicit. The style that you bring to that leadership role needs to be there and people need to experience consistency. You know, um, a lot of uh, the cultural and ethical dimensions of leadership is, is about being clear about what they are, but also being consistent because people just, you know, they sniff inconsistently, inconsistency immediately. And that, that starts to unravel right at the beginning, levels of trust and confidence about who we are and what we are part of and what we're trying to do. So can you give us some examples of where you've seen that leadership play out very strongly at a cultural level and how it's helped support that organisation achieve what it wants to achieve? Yeah, the example I'd go to is um, time I spent in New York at the 60 Nation Network. Now, this was an organisation that actually is fundamentally volunteer-driven. Um, there were about 300 staff in 60 offices around the world, um, but upwards of about 75 to 80,000 volunteers. Uh, it was the very early days of student exchange when it wasn't the sort of business model it's become. It was much more about um, cultures coming together, very much informed by a post-World uh, War II view that if we don't understand each other, we're destined to repeat you know, the, the tragic mistakes of the past. So coming very much from that, that, that perspective. So when I, um, when I became the CEO of that organisation, there were a lot of unhappy people. Why was that so? We were grappling with really good people, well-intentioned, but actually trying to work out across all of those cultures, all of those languages, what, how do we work together? And we had to work together because if you select a young person in country A, you prepare them in orientation, they go to country B, that's where they have the experience with the host family and the school, counselling, um, reintroduction back into their own culture. All of those things demand high levels of consistent and integrated thinking and practice across all of those organisations. So when I was first in the role, there were a lot of people pointing at each other and saying, it's your fault, you know, this has gone wrong, it's, this is not right, what's going on? So one of the things we needed to do early on was kind of sort of blow the whistle and say... Um, hang on, um, we're an organisation that says there will be a more peaceful and harmonious world if we all walk together, talk together. We're not doing that. <laughs> so we've got nothing to say to the world unless we can solve that. Because why should we expect that of others when we seem to be struggling with it ourselves? The two major initiatives there were to actually bring the sort of 100 um, key volunteer and staff leaders together once a year. Big expense, a lot of people saying... You know, you can't justify that. I said my view was we cannot afford not to do it 
because the, the personal interaction and discussing of ideas and differences is really important to get cohesion. Secondly, you had to get really smart about, look, what's myth? What's misunderstandings? What, what is really going on here? So we worked very closely with a really outstanding Swiss consultant to put together um, surveying about each other's performance, where we could critique each other's performance, not in the sense of continuing negative criticism, but of beginning to explore why are there differences? Why are we seeing the world differently? And if things have gone wrong, what happened and why? And what do we do about that? Um, and what I experienced is people became very constructive. Because these are good people. I mean, it's like most organisations, frankly, I've worked in, whether they're commercial or not-for-profit. Good people wanting to do good things, but the systems are not helping them and supporting them. And the leadership is not encouraging the opportunities to explore how do we get through that. In that 60-country network, there was no shortage of cultural differences. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in a very significant way, we had to find where's the common humanity in all of this? Where do, where do we work together across those differences and find the common ground. And, I, and, and look, that's always work in progress, but I think that's, and, and it plays out in every organisation, but I think it's one of the fundamental responsibilities of leadership. So it sounds like you're saying it's really important to get very clear about culture and to be very explicit about your expectations around culture? Yeah, and, and to invite people to that discussion around the table. I mean, one of the dynamics I think plays out in organisation, uh, in organisations I think is often the, the tension between the talkers and the doers. Uh, and you, you need both. You know, you need a variety, obviously, different personalities and perspectives. But, but you, you need that reflective space, and you need to bring your your, your talkers. Uh, you know, love that space. Um, the doers can get sometimes irritated and frustrated frustrated with it. Let's just get on and do it. Like you know, we've agreed what our values are. We've listed them. And that's fine. But you've kind of got to hold people in a space of, yeah, but you know, we all need to understand what's behind those words. When you list cultures in an organisation, people will use words like respect, integrity. Uh, but, but, you know, if you, if you have a conversation with somebody in an organisation and probe a little bit, you'll get very considered insights and thoughts about what that means around here. Uh, and that, that, to me, is an immediate um, indicator of, the, you know, this is an organisation that has really uh, explored this space and has got a shared commitment to what it means. It's back to that issue of the conversation sometimes is almost more important than the words you end up with to have that, that agreement. And having become really clear about what you're expecting culturally, mm. how do you link that to strategy and performance? Ah, well, and, and I, I absolutely, I think it's absolutely essential because, um, uh, look, and I'll start from a strange place. A friend of mine used to be uh, the deputy director of one of the state prison systems. And he once said something to me a long time ago, which really had an impact on me, because if you think about any space where you could tell people what to do and they have to do it, you think it's a prison. Uh, he said, no, you cannot do anything really in a prison unless the inmates agree to it and will go along with it. Mm -hmm. So I thought, hmm, well, that's kind of interesting. I think that when you're setting a strategy and particularly when you move to implementation, this is back to Drucker's quote about, you know, great culture... We'll, we'll, we'll eat strategy every time. I mean, strategy matters, of course it does. But if you have a culture where there's level, high levels of agreement, that brings trust. It brings uh, a generosity when things don't quite work as expected. Um, it plays out in all kinds of different ways. And I think very importantly, it sets up the scene for change. Because I start from the assumption that uh, most people will resist change. I do. 
I like to be comfortable in all aspects of life. So if we take human services and if we say, and if we look and talk seriously about our strategy, we relate that to our values and the values are often about take you back to the individual. We are here because of people in difficult, vulnerable situations and that matters and that should be the heart of everything we do. Therefore, let us examine our professional practice. Are we doing it in the most effective way? What does the evidence tell us? Where do we go from here? What ideas would we try? How do we marry that with one of the great ethical you know, uh, imperatives, and that is do no harm? You, you explore very deep and very significant conversations. In the absence of um, a, a very strong culture that that's what we're committed to, people can default to, uh, no, no, we're, we're running a great program here. This is a terrific program, you know, we, we mustn't touch it. But, but you're also sometimes saying something even more profound. You're actually th- saying to people, you know what, what we've been doing for the last three, four years is probably not the best. Now, that's quite confronting um, if, if you are working with people in very vulnerable situations. So, you know, we, part of the culture is to say, look, if it's the person the individual, the family at the centre of what we do, we need to be intensely curious about what produces better results and why and to be able to explore all those possibilities. And this notion of not getting set in our own way of doing something in a predictable way but being open to change, new ideas, new innovation, ways of implementing continuous change at the coalface of a service. You want people who think that way and feel supported to think and act that way. Because you can't, you can't tell people. You can't set a direction, but you can't actually tell people to do that. It's got to come from them. What about the flip side, where you've seen a bad or toxic culture and perhaps some of the markers of that, and how do you go about changing that? There are several answers to that. I suppose the first one's not very helpful. I experienced it once in the corporate world. I, I, I had to think about, can I be part of a change here or not? My decision was, no, no. Uh, I don't have, you know, the, the position or power or influence to do that. So I left. And that was a good thing to do. So I think if you're an individual, you, you've got to be sort of realistic about, you know, can I change this or can I, cha- can I change it or can, or can I not change it? I think sometimes in leadership roles, you've got to be prepared to make the hard call. So if you've got a very toxic culture, is that because you've got good people and frankly, the, the leadership and the dysfunctionality has not been, you know, that, that's been part of the problem and therefore you begin to sort of work on how to change that. Or frankly, are there people who need to go? Are there teams that need to go? Um, look, and then, then you begin the journey. I mean, I've got up in groups of people and had people, the body language has said, yeah, 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 you know, we hear the words. So, um, uh, but we don't believe you and maybe we've been disappointed and let down in the past by having these words said before. But, you know, once again, you're very explicit, you're very open, um, you start that journey, you have those conversations uh, and it's a bit of the bell curve of change. You've got those early adopters who kind of get it and they think, yep, well, this is worth a shot, I'll go with this. Um, and, and you move through that sort of that bell curve of change. Um, I, I think it's one of the most fascinating things of leadership frankly, and no matter where you enter an organisation, whether it's in a difficult environment or whether it's really, you know, sailing high and doing well, um, working out how to both either maintain that or to build towards that, I, for me, is made the most interesting and the most rewarding aspects of leadership. Can you tell us about a time where you've had to actively manage culture, perhaps make a hard call about something related to culture? It doesn't happen all that often in my experience, but... Um, 
you need to be able to draw a line around certain behaviours and, and the way in which people operate. Um, and that can be difficult, difficult because uh, there can be fallout from that. Um, and I've certainly been involved in situations, a few situations where that was the case. A person may have a lot of influence. It may become quite public. The media may be quite interested in that. Um, but but I, I think that I always take the view in those situations, the world is watching. The staff is watching. Everybody's watching. And everybody kind of knows this is a moment of truth. So do our values really count here or don't they? And, uh, and you make the call. Uh, and sometimes in that situation, you may not be the person who <laughs> is still standing at the end of it, frankly, but you make the call. And when I've made that call afterwards, I've never regretted it. And in fact, I think it's been really good for the organisations because they've seen that actually when it matters, it's just not words. It actually really, you know, the, the, the tough stuff um, and the tough decisions get taken consistent with the values. And can you see from that and from some of those instances you've experienced that sometimes actually staff also have a really important role in developing and maintaining culture? Oh, absolutely, because um, if, if, every, if, if you strive with a workforce and some of the workforces that I've been responsible for go into the thousands, so you know, there's ways in which over time you kind of build the cohesion of that culture and the importance of it, I find, um, you know, and I hear back anecdotally, that those people who, let's say, you know, to be a bit gentle about it, aren't aligned with that or they exhibit behaviour that's not appropriate to that, uh, actually their work colleagues call them out on it. And that becomes a terrific sort of way for an organisation um, to be effective without people being told what to do but individuals taking the responsibility uh, with their own work colleagues about what do we expect of each other and how do we work together. And it's, it's very powerful. So it sounds like being really explicit about culture and mm. then allowing both you as a leader and also staff as a group to not only understand it but to help maintain it and build it. Absolutely. And I, and I think that um, uh, I, I'm always thinking about and when do you refresh? When do you renew? When do you uh, reacquaint ourselves with what matters around here? Because one thing that can creep up on you is um, with staff turnover with new services opening up. Um, great work was done around this a year ago. Everybody's feeling really good about it, but it's a year later and all of a sudden, you know, you neglect this issue, frankly, to your peril. Um, uh, and so one of the things that I've learned, sometimes perhaps the hard way, is that um, you're always on the front foot about culture and values. You don't wait for there to be a problem. You refresh, you, you, you re-nurture people's understanding of it and the importance of it. Um, and my experience is staff really welcome that. Richard, if I can just take you to one other place, uh, and this is a question around how much of culture is about the organisation being effective and how much of it is just about the way we do things around here? And... That, that is a tension in many organisations, um, the ethical dimensions of what we do uh, in the perfect world, but the reality of limited resources, time pressures, many other things, and what does that mean in terms of efficiency and effectiveness? My view on that is you've got to find alignment because you can't... It's not really sustainable to kind of have the ethical framework which parts ways with effectiveness. That's what I've always felt in the leadership roles that I've had is that in some organisations there is a danger that we can become so focused on our purpose, 
to help people a very sort of uh, more uh, pure ethical view of that. And let me give you a tangible expression of that. You, you have a service for a range of people in a certain situation. You're providing a fabulous service. I mean, it is just outstanding, but it's for 200 people and there are 1,000 people in that situation. So what's that about? How do we re-examine what we do to provide a different kind of service, a modified service with uh, that can be available more to 400 or 500 people? How do we do that but not lose sight of well, what's an effective? You know, what's a, where's the ethical dimension in that? Are we doing it in the right kind of way? We're not just simply letting our professional standards go. So, look, those are difficult and challenging discussions, but I think they're good discussions because, um, you know, it's, it's ultimately where's the greatest good in all of this and how do we wrestle with those issues? So um, when I look at um, th those two aspects of it, as, as a leader, I've always wanted a workforce that thinks, no, no, we're pretty well aligned on that. And when it is difficult and challenging, we kind of talk about it and we get ourselves to a, a pretty good place on it, but we don't duck it. That uh, question about change is something that we in the social sector often find quite challenging yeah. because we are quite married to our purpose and mm, quite passionate mm. about it. Mm. So it's interesting to me to think about this whole cultural question and the role of change as we look forward. Mm. The sector broadly is going through so much change, particularly with things like NDIS, and we can only see looking forward that change is going to continue. So how do we think about culture as we look to the future? Well, I think we're in a great time with all that change happening. And it's very confronting, I know, for a lot of organisations, a lot of individuals, but I think it's a fantastic time. So if you go back to the, say, you know, the early 90s, through the 90s when I was first involved in this sector, I mean, I, it may be a harsh, harsh description, but I think it was pretty moribund. So if you look at the rate of change now and the thinking and things that have happened like Social Ventures Australia, it's completely different. Then you have the NDIS coming in, you have consumer-directed coming in, care coming in, which I think are fantastic because it is about the individual having choice and control. So this is, this is changing the model quite dramatically. The organisations that I'm impressed with have actually stepped up the focus on the culture and the values of the organisation and said this will be at the heart. So when we talk about efficiency, that, that's not a dirty word. That's a good word because resources are always limited. Now, the old dynamic of organisations saying to government, just give us more money and we'll do wonderful things with it, you know, it's just not, it isn't real. It isn't real. There's always a healthy debate about how much money. But the responsibility the organisations have, both the individual and ultimately to society as a whole, is to do that really well and efficiently. Humanely done, evidence-based, efficiently done. Why wouldn't anybody want to be part of that? Big change process. So, you know, the leaders, the leadership through that change are once again fundamentally important. But, but, but I, I, I see it in the way that organisations respond to it. Some are very defensive about it. They, they in a sense, want to try and hang on to the past. Uh, those that are uh, embracing it, they're very realistic about the issues and the challenges. But, um, but they're doing it in a way in which I think if you talk to the stakeholders in that organisation, the staff in that organisation, they would say, this is a really, really good thing because we're going to have better services and we're going to make better use of the resources for those services, and I'm proud to be part of it. And I feel when I go home at night and people say, well, what do you do? I feel very proud about how we do it and the way in which we challenge ourselves to do it even better. An endorsement of the sector and the work that everybody in it does. Are there any last words you'd like to leave us with? I think the spirit of optimism and hope should always be there. Uh, and, you know, if we're talking about 
leading from the point of view of culture uh, and values. Um, you know, that small little word, hope for the future, is so important because there are no end of challenges and if people want to go down that pathway, it can become overwhelming. I, I love it and I think we all do. When you're in an organisation, it isn't, it isn't um, you know, force kind of cheer squad type stuff, but there's a real spirit of, you know, optimism, smart thinking, hope about how we do this and we will change this. And that, that kind of leadership is just inspiring and, and people want to be part of it, which is why we attract really, really good people into this sector now. Because they can maybe they can go off and make a whole lot of money elsewhere and all that, but it's about the culture and the values, and they have the opportunity to express that in an organisation that values it. So um, I I think with that in mind, you know, I think we're in for over the next five or ten years a very exciting, very challenging period, but but a, but a great period to really demonstrably change our society in Australia for the better. That's a lovely note to leave it on. Thank you for your time, Richard. Mm, thanks, Susan. Related podcasts and articles can be found on the SVA Quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly forward slash.